chapter 1. So if you want to turn, literally like open up the Bible, um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. And then we're going to um, later on towards the end flip over to Romans chapter 1. So if you want to stick a bookmark or a finger or something in there, that's where we're going to be today. So we are continuing today in our study over the uh, foundation series. It's, you know, it's funny, you guys. I, I noticed this when I was up here doing announcements. So, like, I was making fun of the worship team because Sam moved over to this side today because Julianne's not here. And so he was like this lone wolf over here. So we moved, like, everything over to this side of the church and everybody's sitting over there. It's just like the weirdest. We just have a weird dynamic here. I don't know how we, how we work this stuff out. But anyways, we're going to be in our foundation series today, and we're going to be continuing to look at these core doctrines of the Christian faith as we've been doing. Uh, this is now the fourth sermon in this series. So last week we talked about who is Jesus. I'm going to move this over a little bit because I keep getting flashed in the face by the projector. Uh, last week we talked about who Jesus is, and we talked about, uh, you know, just basically did a, did a real, real broad flyover on the doctrine of Christ. And, and like I said, there were so many things that I wanted to be able to dig into that I wasn't able to dig into. And we're in the same boat again today. So today we're going to be talking about who we are. We're going to be, so far we've been looking a lot in this series about God and the things of God. Today we're going to look at who we are as human beings and what it means to be a human being and how sin has impacted our humanity. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. And so just like the rest of the series, I'm going to try to give you the, the high points, hit the high points, and then there's going to be a lot of things that I'm not able to touch on, and so I'm sure there will be questions, and of course, I would love to, to be able to answer those questions for you in the sermon, but if I can't do that, then, um, you know, feel free to, to send them my way, and we'll try to answer them or, or seek out some good resources. The good thing about a series like this, as I've been saying, is that it, it, it creates questions, and those, create, those questions are a good thing. It causes us to to want to dive into God's word and seek out answers. I mean, I, I regularly find things in my study over scripture that I don't understand, and it causes me to, to dig in deeper and to try to find answers to those things. And that's a good thing. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. But why is this a part of our study? Why? I mean, we're talking about core doctrines of the faith why does it matter what we believe about us? Why does it matter what we believe about mankind? Like, how does that relate to what we believe about God? Why is that a part of theology? Why is that something that we care about? The bottom line is that we can't rightly understand much of anything to do with God if we don't start with a foundational understanding of who we are, particularly in terms of the gospel, right? Like the gospel just won't make sense to us if we don't understand who we are as human beings, if we don't understand where we are at uh, and what's our human condition apart from Christ. If we don't understand where we've been, we can't understand where we're going. If we don't understand these things, then the things of God won't really make sense to us because let's just be honest about it. We start with ourselves, don't we? I mean, I view the world from my perspective. You view the world from your perspective. The things that I think about myself and about the world around me and about others, all of these things uh, influence the way that I think about everything. And, and God and his word, he wants to speak into that reality. And so that's what we're going to try to dig into today. So let's start 
where the Bible starts in terms of the story of mankind with the creation narrative. So last week, my wife said, you were like way into your sermon before you got to any scripture. She was concerned I was just not even going to the, go to the scripture. This week, we're going to do the complete opposite. We're jumping right into the scripture. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation narrative. We're going to pick it up on the sixth day of creation. So, so far, God has created the world. He's created the air and the land and the sea and the heavens and all of these things. And on the sixth day, he begins to create living life. He brings life to all of those things. So that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 24. It says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. See, the world would have us to believe a lot of things about ourselves, wouldn't it? I mean, the world is coming at us constantly with different things that, we, that is trying to get us to believe about ourselves, about our culture, about what's important. We have all of these things, all of these influences coming at us all the time. And I mean, you know, it's from where we come from to where we're going to what we're here for, all of these questions are constantly being thrown at us. And the world has a lot to say about it. And a lot of it doesn't jive with what the Bible has to say. You see, the foundational starting point for the Christian has to be with God and his word. See, God is the origin of all life. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He gives life. We see that right here in the creation narrative, that there was no life, and then God spoke life into existence. He breathed the breath of life into the living creatures that now roam the earth. And above all of those creatures was man. Man is the crown jewel of God's creation. See, we see in verses 26 and 27 that man is, is different or special from the rest of the creation. See, man is endowed with the, um, the image of God or the imago Dei. This means that God has specifically created mankind for a purpose, that he has something, that he has set mankind apart for a special purpose, that there's something different about mankind, that he's doing something different and special in man, and that he has specifically created mankind to reflect his image to the world. See, we are, as God's image bearers, reflect his image to the world. That's why we've been created. 
his image and his glory. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. See, understanding our humanity in light of creation in the image of God, it should have a monumental impact on how we think about things, how we live our lives. That's been kind of the core premise of this series, hasn't it? That what we believe will influence what we do, what we think, how we act. And so when we believe rightly, we act rightly. When we believe wrongly, we'll, we'll act wrongly. So as Christians, we should have a Christ-centered worldview. That means that Jesus and the gospel and the scriptures and everything that we're talking about should influence everything that we think about the world that we live in and the way that we interact with it, including the, the, the way that we um, treat other people, the way that we uh, handle our resources, our finances, the way that we uh, work, the way that we, all of these things, all of these things that go into to filling up our days should be in, impacted and influenced by what we believe, by what the scriptures teach us. You see, the Imago Day points to the way in which we reflect God ontologically. And that's a big word, and all it really means is in terms of our nature or our being. In other words, we reflect God's image within our attributes. So God, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about God, but God has two different sets of attributes, or we, can under, we understand them and we categorize them in two different ways. So God has communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Communicable, at, communicable attributes, see those such big words are hard to say. Communicable attributes are the attributes of God that we reflect in ourselves. So things like the fact that we um, are able to make choices, that we have moral agency, that we think and we feel and we have a will and we're, we're cognizant, all these things that, that, um, that reflect the image of God. Those are God's communicable attributes. Plus things like being loving and just and merciful and gracious and truthful and faithful. All of those things are attributes of God that we reflect. So we don't, we don't manifest them in the fullness that God does, but we reflect them. Like an image in a mirror, right? Incommunicable attributes, on the other hand, are things of the attributes of God that we don't possess. Things like his eternality, his aseity, which just means that he's self-sustaining and self-existent, um, his, all those omnis that we talked about, the omnipresence, that he's everywhere all at once, omniscience, that he knows all things, omnipotence, that he has all power. Those are things that clearly we don't possess, right? That's an important, that's an important thing for us to understand about how we reflect God's image, but that's really just a kind of a superficial understanding of how we reflect God's image. You see, we reflect God's image in a much deeper way, and that's really where, where I want to kind of dig in here. You see, the first thing I think we need to see is that the Imago Dei gives value and dignity to every human life. See, the essence of what it means to be human is to be an image bearer of God. Those two things are, are uniquely uh, connected in the scriptures. That's what makes a human being different from every other creature that, that God created. It makes us different from the animals and nature, makes us different from the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. It's that we reflect God's image, that we bear God's image, that we are God's image bearers. Consequently, that means that every human being is equally worthy of honor and value and dignity and all of these things, regardless of their race, regardless of their nationality, 
regardless of their gender, regardless of their possessions and their wealth, regardless of their occupation, regardless of where they live or what kind of car they drive, regardless of whether they're popular or not, regardless of whether they're likable or not, regardless of whether they believe what you believe. Every human being that has ever been created or will ever be created is created in the image of God. That means that they inherently have value, dignity, worth, all of these things. See, the image of God is most fully reflected in, a, in as Revelation 7, 9 says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. The theologian Herman Bovink, who's one of my favorites to read, he emphasizes this a lot in his, in his discussion and writing over the doctrine of man, that one of the ways that, that mankind reflects the image and glory of God is in our diversity, that, there, that we look differently, that we think differently, that we feel differently, that we're created as individual beings. We're not all the same. I'm not exactly the same as you. You're not exactly the same as me. We're individuals. We have individual attributes and characteristics and qualities and things that we like and don't like. And God has made us all different for a reason. And it's in that, that wide array of diversity that we see a greater picture of the image and glory of God. So let me start out with what that doesn't mean, because I think when we hear things like that, we start to think like, oh, well, that lines up good with what the world is teaching me. So let me touch on what that doesn't mean, what I don't want you to take away from that today. See, it doesn't mean that we should affirm everything that our current worldview would have us affirm. It doesn't, the, our current worldview equates um, uh, valuing humanity to rejecting anything that, that we might say is absolutely true. So, so to affirm humanity, to affirm diversity means we have to affirm everything that we see. There's no absolute truths, rather all truth is relative. So what's true for you is, is true for you and what's true for me is true for me and that's good and, and we should affirm that. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we should reject all of these absolute truths that we see in scripture in the name of being tolerant. That's what our society would have us believe. It also doesn't mean that every person gets to decide for themselves what is true. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we must affirm the way that the society defines things like value and honor and dignity and justice and equality. It doesn't mean that. Keep in mind that we live in a society that was formed and established by sinful human beings. We make laws as sinful human beings. We, we determine policy as sinful human beings. We determine what's good and right as sinful human beings. See, sin influences everything in our culture. And so sin would have us to believe things that aren't true. Here's what it does mean. It means that we must live according to God's standard and according to his word and according to his design for how humanity is to flourish. That's what it means. And if we look at God's word, then we see that clearly that there's things that God accepts, there's things that God affirms, there's things that God loves and likes and the things that please God. And we also see in scripture that there's things that God doesn't like. There's things that God rejects. There's things that God hates. Scripture uses strong language on, on sinful things. Think, words like abominations, words like hate. Things that we don't typically associate with God. See, God does not affirm all things. 
There's many things that God does not affirm. So what we need to do is we need to align our lives, as I've been saying, right? We need to align our lives with what Scripture says. We need to affirm the things that Scripture affirms. And what that's going to do is that's going to put us at odds with the world around us. At, at, at all points, it's going to put us at odds with the world around us. It's going to make us think differently than the world around us. It's going to make us act differently than the world around us. It's going to make us unpopular in the world around us. It's going to make the world around us look at us in ways that we don't enjoy. It's going to make the world make us be called things like bigots or um, you know short short-sighted or narrow-minded or things like that. Right? The world is not going to like that viewpoint because it flies in the face of what the world is trying to throw at us in this world where we should just affirm everything where everything is good nothing's bad everything's good it doesn't even make sense logically right i mean if you have a conversation with somebody that that holds that worldview and you ask them logical questions there's no way that they can even answer them logically it doesn't make any sense right what if i decide that it's good for me to to want to just go and shoot my neighbor because uh, you know, I didn't like the way he mowed his grass. Well, who says that's wrong, right? Well, well, the law says it's wrong. Well, you know, who makes up the laws? You know, it, I mean, it's just, it's a never-ending, it's a, it's a swirl downward, right? A never-ending suck down into to the abyss of nothingness. So what can we learn from the passage that we read? I think the first thing that we see is that life begins with, uh, with God. We see clearly in the creation narrative that life originates with God. The implication here is that life is intrinsically valuable. Therefore, no man or woman has the right to decide to, to take another life, especially without justifi justifiable cause. And what I mean by that is that there is a precedent in Scripture for things like killing to protect yourself or your family, killing in the act of war, killing as a punishment for a crime. There is a precedent in Scripture for that. So it doesn't mean that, that, that killing in general is wrong. The, the commandment in Scripture is thou shalt not murder, right? So what we do not see in Scripture is the right for a parent to take the life of a child, born or unborn. I don't think we can talk about the value of human life and ignore the issue of abortion. It's not something that we like to talk about. It's not something that's comfortable to talk about. It's not something I want to be standing here talking about. But I think that we clearly have to, have to talk about it because it's a huge problem in our world today. You see, if all human life is created in the image of God, then all life has value. There's no way around that. There's no way to equate killing an unborn child to, to what the Bible says about human life. Of course, we all, we all get that to kill a child outside of the womb would be wrong, right? If I was just to decide one day, well... You know, things are getting tight, and, uh, you know, I've got three kids at home, and, and you know, well, I, I just can't, it's not going to work anymore, right? I mean, it's terrible. I'm, I'm kidding. I, wouldn't, I, I, I love my children. But we all get that that would be terrible. I would go to jail, and rightly so. But our society has determined that an unborn child, at least to some seemingly arbitrary point in the gestational process, is, is not worthy or has no intrinsic right to life. Where does that come from? It clearly doesn't come from Scripture. This is an abomination to God who at every turn in Scripture commands his people to protect the weak, the needy, the sick, the poor, the least of these. 
Because of the Imago Dei, every life has value. Because every life is sovereignly created by God for his good and wise purposes. This is something that we just need to wrap our minds around. And this impacts more than even just abortion. There's a lot of stuff going on in our society right now. A lot of talk about different lives that matter, right? Based on our skin color and all these different things, right? And there's, there's, there is a lot of truth in what's being said. And there's a lot that's wrong with what's being said. At the end of the day, for the Christian, we have to understand that every human being is created in God's image, so every human being has value. So the, for, for anyone who professes to be a Christian, that means that there is no place in the church for things like racism. There is no place in the church for things like sexism. There is no place in the church for things like abortion and supporting things that support those things. There's no place in God's church for those things. I mean, I mean I'm just being completely frank and honest here. There's no place in the, in the church for those things. That's not meant to be shocking or offensive, but again, if, if what we believe will impact the way that we live, if it will impact and influence our actions, then our actions and the way we think and the way we live should reflect Christ. That's the bottom line. The way we live should reflect Christ. And anything that doesn't reflect Christ, that doesn't bring glory to God, that doesn't serve to reflect his image to the world around us should be rejected. The second thing that I think we see here is that God has created us distinctly male and female. This is another thing that's a hot-button topic in our culture right now. See, our culture would, would want us to believe that men and women, that there's this kind of this weird, blurred line between what's, what's a male and what's a female. That it's, you know, you kind of can just move around in that space. But the Bible distinctly teaches us that men and women are created as male and female. Men and women, we are not the same. I think we get that, right? <laughs> I mean, as, biologically, it's very clear we're not the same. We're also distinct in our calling from God. I think that's something else that we see here in the creation narrative. We've covered this before, but just for the sake of clarity, men and women, there is no distinction, I just touched on this, there's no distinction in value, worth, dignity, etc., between men and women. No distinction. Both are created in the image of God. Both are equal image bearers of God. There is no distinction. Men, we are not better than women. Women, you are not better than men. We are equal in God's eyes. But there are clear distinctions made by God in Scripture in regards to other areas, particularly in regards to um, headship in the family and the community of faith. So God has created men to lead. And that means that men, we are called to lead, right? We were created to lead. We are called to lead we should be leaders. Headship is, is um, uh, it, it, this isn't something to puff our heads up about, fellas. It's not something for us to boast about. But headship in biblical terms primarily refers to responsibility. So what I say, or what I mean when I say that men are called to lead, I mean that men are called to lead in terms of responsibility. That means that in my home, in the church, that as a man, I have responsibilities that my wife does not have, that I am called to accept those responsibilities, that I am called to live out 
those responsibilities and that I am going to be accountable to God for those things in a way that my wife will not be accountable to God. Men are ultimately responsible to lead in our homes, in our communities, in our churches, and we are responsible to God for the way in which we exercise that leadership. This doesn't mean that there's no place for female leadership in any of these places. We have females who lead in various ways in our church. It is a blessing to our church family in a number of ways. Uh, I mean, Tricia and Beth and, and Laura do a wonderful job with our kids. My wife, Tracy, leads our women's ministry, and I, she puts me to shame with some of the things that she's doing with the women in our church. So there are numerous ways in which we want to encourage women to lead. We want to see women lead. But ultimately, in terms of leadership, when we're talking about the difference between male and female, God has created men to be responsible in a different way than he has created women. It, doesn't also, it also means that there, is, um, that there is not a responsibility for women to lead. It doesn't mean that my wife is not answerable to God for the ways in which she um, exercises her leadership in our family as well but I'm going to be held to a higher standard, a different standard. It's just God, the two are different in God's eyes. The distinction is in the, in the primary responsibility. That means that men are created or called as the, are primarily created and called to lead. Women are primarily created and called to help, to come alongside and to help and to partner with the men. When this is taught poorly and or understood wrongly, people get hurt. Let's just be honest about it. Because it's oftentimes taught wrongly and it's oftentimes understood wrongly and it's oftentimes used for uh, terrible things. Abuse, to, to, to put the, uh, the other sex down, to abuse, to um, marginalize. See, when it's, when it's done poorly, when it's taught poorly, people get hurt. Men will be careless, they'll be domineering, they'll be dismissive, they'll be demeaning. Women will be marginalized, ignored, abused, censored, etc. In both cases, we all lose because we flourish when we live according to God's design for creation. We all lose in those situations, both men and women. Moreover, our maleness and femaleness is meant to be embraced. We see that clearly here in the scriptures. See, our culture is seeking to neutralize the genders in, in, in our God-given gender identity in favor of some kind of pseudo-androgyny where there's just no clear demarcation. We can choose to be whatever we want. We can choose to identify however we want. It doesn't matter how God created us. We can cast those shackles off and we can be whatever we want. We can exercise that and explore our sexuality in whatever terms we want, with whoever we want, whenever we want, we want, however we want. We are free. We want to cast off all of those chains that come with the, that gender identity that God gave us. He didn't know what he was doing when he created us. We know so much better. And all of it comes with seemingly zero consequences, right? We affirm all of these things. We're putting policy in place to affirm these things. There's no consequences for any of this, seemingly. But what happens to our society in the long run? Time will tell, right? Time will tell. This doesn't mean that we need to be conformed to societal stereotypes of masculinity and femi femininity where men are rough and tough and, and you know, we, we kill stuff, we build stuff, 
We, 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 you know, we get out there, we've got hammers in our hands. You know, that's what it means to be a man. So if you don't do that, if you don't enjoy that, you're not really a man. And what it means to be a, a woman is to, to like to, you know, cook and, and have kids and, you know, all of these things. I mean, that's what it means to be a woman, right? That's not, what the, that's not what scripture is saying. It doesn't mean that we need to, you know, if you find your son playing with, his, with one of his friends and they're playing with Barbies that you need to take him out back and, you know, give him a, a talking to, you know. It doesn't mean that. That's not what scripture's saying. What it's saying, though, is that we are distinctly male and female and we should embrace that. Our interpersonal relationships should also reflect that reality. That means that in the way that we uh, interact with other human beings should reflect the reality that we are created distinctly male and female in terms of all areas, right? So in the bedroom too, right? In marriage, male and female. I don't want to belabor that point too much. But let me just say that it's real easy for Christians to stand on our soapbox when it comes to the topic of homosexuality. I mean, it's real easy for us to get bent out of shape because it's a real hot-button topic in our culture. And so it's real easy for us to get on our soapbox when the, when the topic of homosexuality comes up. And then we just ignore all of the other sexual sins that are going on inside the church, right? Things like pornography, adultery, promiscuity, cohabitation. Those things are cool. Right? We can ignore all those things because we're going to be on our soapbox about homosexuality. No, all of those things fall under the umbrella of sexual sin. So if I struggle with lust and, uh, and another, another brother or sister struggles with um, homosexual temptation, right? we're in the same boat together. I'm not better off than they are. Just because my lust is for the opposite sex and their lust is for the same sex, it's all lust. Right? It's all the same it's all under that same term of sexual sin. That, that can't stand, right? I mean, we can't get all bent out of shape over here and then let the rest of this stuff just go on in our, in our churches, in our homes, and not be too concerned about it in the way that we raise our children. I mean, keep in mind, parents, that our children are being exposed to things that, or have access to things that we never even imagined. And they're being influenced by these things and it's coming at them and the temptations are there. And we need to be responsible as parents to try to protect them. And it's really, really hard. I, I've got two teenagers now in my house and one that's getting there quickly. And it's really hard. And they don't like some of the rules that we put in place. And, and I don't like having to argue with them about them. But we have to do these things because we're trying to protect them as best we can. And it's just really, really hard. There's just so many things that are coming at our children today. The third thing that I think we see here is that the purpose of humanity is to mediate God's blessing and rule to all creation as priest kings. We touched on the topic of priest kings, if you recall, back in Hebrews. I wrote a blog about it. Um, it was something that we touched on a little bit. Cody talked about Melchizedek. It was this kind of weird, abstract figure that just kind of appeared out of nowhere in our study over Hebrews. And he, he kind of pops up in the scriptures and then you never really hear about them again. But we see this in the cultural mandate given in verse 28. You see, a priest is to mediate God's blessing in the world. And we see this in God's command that we should be fruitful. See, God trusted, entrusted the garden, the well-being of the garden to Adam and Eve. 
The garden foreshadows the temple. The temple foreshadows Christ in this church. The priests mediate God's blessing to the world. A king is to mediate God's governance over the world. We see this again in the cultural mandate where it says, have dominion. See, God's purpose in establishing a people unto himself has always been to mediate his blessing and rule in the world. That's always been his purpose in creating a people for himself. Starting with Adam and then Israel and now the church. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, Adam failed to walk in obedience to his calling, and it plunged the world into despair. The second Adam Christ walked in perfect obedience to his calling and by his obedience he offers redemption and restoration to all who come to him by faith. Christian brothers and sisters, he has put his spirit in us so that we might carry out his plans, his work here as his representatives until his second coming, until he comes and finally makes all things new and finishes his redemptive work. We are called and commanded to be his hands and his feet. This is God's calling for all men, but, but our, in our sin-tainted flesh, it's not in our nature today. See, we all are created as God's image bearers to accomplish his work, and yet sin has, has marred that image. It has um, distracted us from the work to which we've been called. See, we can't fully understand what it means to be human without spending some time talking about sin and how sin has impacted our humanity. Sin is described in the Bible as rebellion against God and the transgression of his law. It's rejecting God's design and purposes in favor of our own. It's making ourselves our own functional God in many ways. We need to understand not just what sin is, but how it impacts us as human beings. You see, we have to first understand that the sin of Adam in the garden fundamentally changed humanity. It fundamentally changed our nature and who we are, what it means to be human. You see, we're not sinners because we sin, right? We're not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. Do you see the difference there? Which comes first, the action and then the label or the label and then the action, right? Or the attitude or the nature. The nature leads to the action. Adam's sin corrupted our flesh in such a way that our natural inclination is no longer to pursue God and the things of God, but rather to run from God, to reject God, to flee from God and the things of God. This is what it means to have a sin nature. Think of nature as like the default or strongest inclination or desire that controls or establishes our normal behavior. Think of it that way. Like, for example, fish have a nature, right? They live in the water. It would be unnatural for a fish to one day decide, I don't want to be in the water anymore. I want to go live on the land, right? A, a lion is a predator. It kills and eats whatever it wants. It would be unnatural for a lion to one day to wake up and just say, you know, that antelope over there, i got to chase him. It's kind of a pain. I'm going to go make a salad, right? That would be unnatural. 
We see this all the time in the animal kingdom. To act contrary to one's nature is, by definition, unnatural. To say that human beings have inherited from Adam a sin nature is to say that the moral corruption of the flesh is so comprehensive as to make it unnatural and impossible for us to walk in obedience to God in and of ourselves. That's a mouthful. Let me give you that one again. To say that human beings have inherited from Adam a sin nature is to say that the moral corruption of the flesh is so comprehensive as to make it unnatural and impossible for us to walk in obedience to God in and of ourselves. A human being deciding one day to reject sin and to pursue God is like a fish deciding to jump out of the water or a lion deciding to have a salad. It just doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical to even think about. This is, the, this is foundational to our understanding of ourselves. It's foundational to our understanding of the gospel. It's foundational to our understanding of everything. It all starts here. It flies in the face of our inherent pride and our self-righteousness that says, I can clean myself up. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden, the first thing they did when they sinned is they went and tried to clean themselves up and make themselves presentable to God. They covered their shame in fig leaves and they came before God and they tried to cover it up because it's that pride and that arrogance and that self-righteousness that says, I can do it. I can do it on my own. I can tighten up my bootstraps. I can do it. I can make myself look presentable to God. I can make God want me. Why wouldn't God want me? Look how wonderful I am. He should be impressed with me, right? Sin is often wrongly understood as simply making a mistake or a bad choice. It's much more serious than that. Sin isn't simply what we do, it's who we are. It's the core of who we are apart from Christ. It infects every area of our lives. And like a disease, if it goes untreated, it will kill us. Moreover, we sin in both our actions and our inactions. We can sin by choosing to do something we are commanded not to do. That would be a sin of commission. And we can sin by neglecting to do the things we're called to do. That's a sin of omission. In both cases, it's a sin. So sin, like I said, like a deadly disease will lead to death. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, Scripture is clear that the penalty for sin is death. We talked about this last week, that sin kills us spiritually by separating us from God, from the source of life. God is the source of life. Sin separates us from God. And because we're spiritually disconnected from God and the source of life, we physically die. From the day we are born, we are progressing ever closer to death. See, from our mother's wombs, we are born spiritually dead. We see that in Psalm 51 and Ephesians 2. And this is the grave condition of mankind. But you see, the gospel offers us hope in light of our condition. See, the problem, though, is that most of us don't realize that there's a problem at all. Most people don't realize there's even a problem. We've spent so much time and energy fueling our pride and our arrogance that we just believe we don't need God. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1. I think this is kind of the best place to, to see this in the scriptures. If I can get there. 
got two bookmarks that are too close together. Here we go. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I want you to listen, just listen to this diagnosis on the human condition. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That sounds familiar. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, Paul wrote this letter nearly 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years I can't help but see our culture and us, our society all over that scripture. It's rampant. It's the world that we're living in right now. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. If anything, I would say it's probably gotten worse, not better. You see, the New Testament authors devoted a great deal of their energy to diagnosing the human condition. They understood that to be able to understand the gospel we need to first, to be able to understand the good news, we need to start with the bad news, right? It's like trying to describe colors or light and dark to somebody who's been, who was born blind, who's never seen anything. It's like trying to describe a winter snowstorm to somebody who grew up around the equator, right? It just makes no sense. They've never experienced it. They don't know what it means to be cold because they've only ever experienced warmth. They don't know what it means to be in the dark, in the light, because they've only experienced darkness. If we don't first understand the bad news, we have no framework, no perspective to be able to understand the good news of the gospel. So the New Testament authors spent so much time and energy trying to diagnose the human condition. Today we looked at who we were created to be, who we are apart from Christ, and who we should be in him. And the key to it all is the gospel. The gospel is the key to unlocking it all. It's the answer to the bad news. 
It's the resolution to the human condition. It's the, it's the hope for a dead and dying person. The key to it all is the gospel. And that's where we're going to pick up the next time that we get into the foundation series. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Again, we thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word, Lord. I pray that uh, just the, the reality of who we are, who we are created to be, uh, would influence and impact every aspect of our lives, Lord. And it's easy for me to stand up here and talk about these things. It's much harder to live them out. And I know that. I struggle too. Lord, but, but I just pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are focused on you, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would seek to walk in obedience to you, even when that means that we won't be popular, even when that means that we won't be um, uh, uh, accepted in many ways, even when that means that we'll live on the outskirts or, ex or as exiles in our culture and our society. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to, to walk in that, to rest in that, to, to speak boldly where we need to speak boldly, to show mercy where we need to show mercy and grace where we need to show grace, that we would meet people where you met us in their sin, in their unrighteousness, in the muck and the mire, that we would meet them there with the gospel of hope that pulls us out of that and sets us on a firm foundation. I pray that we would be uh, a church that, that heralds your gospel boldly to, to all the, the corners of, of our, our culture and, and our world, Lord. And we just ask these things in this beautiful name.